When you partner with Axon, you immediately gain access to a full range of products and solutions designed to meet the complex needs of today's grower. We carry all major brands and sizes of tires and wheels. We specialize in large diameter wheels for large equipment. We have one of the largest OEM replacement wheel inventories in North America. Known for extreme flotation setups, duals, and triples, we have wheels for all makes and models of tractors, sprayers, combines, and grain carts. If we don't have the wheel in stock, we'll custom build, sandblast, and paint in-house. There isn't a more vast inventory in North America dedicated to helping dealers move more iron. With facilities on the West Coast and in the heart of the Midwest, leverage our 230,000 square feet of indoor inventory to solve any problem a grower may have. Move more iron with Axon. Hello and welcome to Moving Iron Podcast. This edition of the Moving Iron Podcast is brought to you by these great sponsors. Axon started out of a passion for keeping agriculture moving. Imagine having 100 years of tire and wheel knowledge in your back pocket the next time you sell a piece of ag equipment. To find more or become an Axon dealer, please visit axontire.com. Valley Transportation has been hauling ag and construction equipment across the country for the past 33 years. Call Parker at 800-657-4910 for all your trucking needs. At Valley Transportation, our goal is to help you reach yours. No matter how you buy your ag equipment, whether it's from a dealer, an auction, or a private party, Ag Direct can help you finance it. You can even apply online to agdirect.com. Learn more about your financing options at agdirect.com. TractorZoom has access to over $20 billion in heavy equipment sales data. TractorZoom's Iron Comps is the industry's trusted solution for transparent equipment values and auctionable pricing insights. This podcast is brought to you by Anvil AppWorks. The Dealer Connect CRMI app with integrated inventory management is an affordable Salesforce-based solution for your dealership. Create connected customer experience and transform how you work. Moving iron in the 21st century. Hardworking people working hard for you and me. Moving iron time and time again. Through the years you'll find us here. Moving Iron. Hello and welcome to Moving Iron Podcast number 353, I believe is where we're at now, Rich. Um got Rich Possum back on here, and Rich Possum is comes on once a month, sits down, talks about what's happening in the overall economy and how things are plugging along. Rich also has a podcast called Critical Point Podcast, and it is uh on Podbean and about anywhere else you can find a podcast, right, Rich? Right. Yeah. So talk about yeah, they can find it at, uh, they can go to my main website, criticalpointpod.com, and then they'll find links over to the uh, website to actually host the podcast. And But there's information there about myself and a sign-up place and stuff like that. Okay. And primary, when you're on your podcast, Richard, talking about how your models and what they're doing and, and what you see happening out in the marketplace, correct? Correct. It's uh, based on business cycles, which are just patterns of supply, demand, and markets, but we can find patterns in the actual fundamental information. We can find patterns where we know a certain time a month that the news is going to turn more bad than good, and it's seldom just one or the other. There's always a mixture. And then on a very long-term basis, it helps uh, pointing out a range of few years when we're probably going to go into a recession and get some really bad news. So uh, I think it's very useful and it's served me. I've been working at this for 40-some years here and trade it with my own money, trade other people's money. And I put out this uh, podcast for other people to help them with their money. I do a few commodities, economy, uh, stock market, a little bit of the interest rates and stuff like that. Yeah. Okay. It's a good podcast, well worth taking your time listening to. There's the free stuffs out there. Go check, listen to that, and and uh, go over and subscribe because there's a lot. Rich has got a lot of good stuff, and the one thing about Rich is that I would say you're very uh, contrarian. I guess would probably be the best point to what you hear on on the uh, on the on the news out there. And and Rich does Rich's Rich's stuff has done good has a good track record over the years. So check that stuff out. All right, Rich, let's talk about this a little bit. So I uh clearly not the smartest guy in the world, and but I I'm having a hard time getting my head wrapped around um 
the Fed coming out saying, "Hey, you know what? We're gonna we're gonna take care of this this bank situation we've got. We're gonna we're gonna fix that, and we're also gonna raise rate at the same time. But in the meantime, all the progress that we made up to this point on our balance sheet, we just totally erased in one night by fixing the issue at the bank. But we're still gonna keep raising rates. Help me understand that one, Rich. <laughs> okay, I think there's. Some they're starting to feel a little comfortable that other banks came in to uh, help fix this banking crisis. It won't be quite as expensive for them, but uh, I don't think anybody else believes that. Um, <laughs> but that's what they're thinking, and they still are concerned inflation. They're concerned this banking crisis goes away, and they're going to wake up in a few months that they should have continued to fight the war on inflation. So they're looking at two things, and they're saying, "Well, it's unfortunate, but we got to deal with two different." Uh, problems here, and we got to deal with them at the same time. So they think they need to raise another quarter point. Now, I will say some of the comments from some of the Fed people this week, uh, some of them said they hoped they wouldn't have to raise again. I, I got the, uh, I think they were hinting that they they didn't believe like the others on the Fed, uh, FOMC committee there, um, the Fed board, uh, because there's others saying, yep, might as well keep raising. They they want to get it over 5%. They want a better cushion there. And I, I think they're hoping just to squeeze by, get another rate hike or two in here going into summer. And then I think they're going to try to set still and, and see how it all uh, works out. But, you know, the point is <laughs> they've been raising rates and they finally hurt the banks that they're supposedly helping to create sustainable markets and an economy for us. So <laughs> they shot their own bankers in the foot here uh, by raising rates, raising rates so fast. And, and it is, you know, it's puzzling why some of those banks didn't protect themselves better. They knew the rates were going up. They could have hedged themselves a little better, but at the same time, Hey, we've had 40 years of lower interest rates. Our brains are conditioned, trained, that rates don't go up. And then the Fed raised them at record fast pace. So I think it just caught some of them off guard, even though they should have had better correspondence when the Federal Reserve than you and I, I would think. So it is puzzling what they, those banks should have done better. And those banks also had their own problems anyways. They were probably heading down a path of, of this anyhow, but you could just see the interest rate hike hurt them. And what's the Fed been saying? We want to raise rates high enough to slow the economy down, hurt the jobs, get people to dig in and stop spending so much, and that kind of stuff. And the problem is they wound up hurting the banks first. <laughs> so, um, and and that's a bit scary. That's was unsettling to the stock market and stuff because um, if you look at some of the worst like depressions, they normally started out with a banking problem. It wasn't you right. and I as consumers and businesses. Right. So uh, it, it, there's a reason that uh, people got excited here. But I must say, uh, overall, you know, my gut feeling is the Fed shouldn't raise, but, and hopefully only one more. Uh, I will say this week, we got some decent evidence showing people are cutting back on what they're putting on the credit cards, what they're doing at the store. We are finding even more evidence. A lot of stores um, are, are setting on a lot of inventory, and they are selling it to secondary markets, meaning they're selling it at cheaper prices just to move it. So these things will help out. But again, all of this war and inflation stuff has been a two-edged sword. On one hand, it's the correct thing to do long-term to get us back to a normal economy, get off that inflationary, high inflationary economy. On the other hand, short-term, it's kind of shoots yourselves in the foot. You know, I mean, we're talking about hurting jobs and, and this and that. And uh, so it's I fully understand why a lot of people are confused because this is not like what we've seen since uh, at least the 1970s, if not going back a hundred and some years. Um, it's just a mixed picture where we're doing one thing that makes sense short-term, but not long-term. And then we do something else that um, uh, does, doesn't make sense short-term and does make sense long-term. Um, I will say a few minutes ago, we got the jobs report out and uh, I was kind of impressed Um the ADP, who's usually not right, but uh, and they were way off the mark again on Wednesday. They said 135,000 jobs, yeah. and Dow Jones uh, survey or poll come out with 230 some thousand. Well, it came in at 236,000. So, um, and the stock market went up immediately uh, in the futures. The stock market itself is actually closed, uh, cash market. Um, but uh, the futures went up for a while, and then they kind of eased back a little bit, and they'll just flounder around today because it's, in my opinion, not a true market. Um, 
we'll have to wait till Sunday night, Monday, get the get the full market cranked up here again. But um, the uh, I, I think it's a mixed picture of this two hundred and thirty six thousand jobs because on one hand. I could see bulls and bears saying, well, we don't know what to make of this because that's too high a number and we're going to have to keep fighting inflation and we just don't like it. We'd have preferred the number down. On the other hand, there's going to be both bulls and bears saying, my gosh, you know, it should have been down. And so actually the economy is doing very well. Uh, maybe we aren't heading towards recession. And yep. this week we did see an, uh, once again an uptick on people concerned that uh, the way things are headed, we're heading for a recession by summer or later. Um, my modeling's not going there. I, I just don't see a recession. I like the jobs report today, but it is a bit concerning. Does that mean another rate hike coming by the Fed? And are they going to keep going till they break something else? Um, but on the other hand, we've seen some other jobs information where the pay's backing off. Uh, they're not... Uh, being quite aggressive, we had the Jolts report out this week that that, that runs two months behind. But we're finally down to 10 million available jobs or below 10 million available jobs. And that's been bothering people because it jumped by a huge amount after that lockdown on the, on the COVID business. And it's been coming down very slowly. Well, that's encouraging that maybe, again, we're getting back to a normal economy but at the same time we have other people saying and how nervous is it just going to keep going and things going to fall apart uh for a recession here all i can tell you is the data i'm looking on balance and again there's always a mixture of good and bad data but as of this morning i would say the economy is doing uh quite well here we, we have some indicators i want to see um want to see turn up here we had a pmi report this uh week for the month of march and PMIs are a measurement of what businesses are doing, but also what they're planning on, what they see, what they think. And it's a big drawn out report that businesses pay for, pay, pay big bucks for. And we in the public can get some of the summary of that for free. Comes out once a month. And that PMI has a high correlation to GDP. So it gives us a clue where our economy is going on a real time basis. It's important in my model. I've used it for decades now. I, I really like the PMI. And I made a call last month and I told my subscribers, I says, this could be very dangerous. I'm probably dangling myself over a frying pan. Uh, so as pure timing as you can get. But I said, the PMIs ticked up in February. I'm calling bottom. Well, unfortunately, my favorite PMI by ISM actually went back down again. And more importantly, the services PMI that had been quite strong saying things were going great, really come down quite a bit. So that has worried some over recession. However, another PMI that I follow as a backup put out by SP Global, that actually did move higher in March. And if you chart it out, it looks like maybe I'm right here with this modeling. We found some kind of bottom in that indicator. But the problem is we got a mixed picture now. <laughs> so uh, I, I need those PMIs to get going to the upside here uh, as additional evidence. I don't need it for my call of being optimistic on economy. It's just I'd feel a lot better if we can get those PMIs up there. But I would like to say the PMIs and the GDP for the first time in my career are not really tracking the economy. So this is a weird moment in our lives here of how do we gauge the economy? How do we gauge where where are we at? Where are we going? Um, I'm guessing the GDP has already kind of got back in line with the economy. It's going to do better this year. I think we're on our way to 3%. One of the big banks come out this week saying they think it's coming to over 3% at the end of the year. But other analysts in the bank also are still worried of another setback too, you know? And um so we'll see where it all goes, obviously, but uh, I'm staying with my best forecast that uh, the economy will grow and we'll finish the year on better a better note here. But, you know, with this banking crisis, people worried and some more uh, problems next three months. Uh, some people feel like it's a headwind for us for quite a while. And yet I, I'm, I'm kind of pleased just how quickly the Treasury and Federal Reserve reacted, how quickly some of the other banks stepped up to buy some of those assets or buy those banks out they may have not had a choice because the fed is good at that they'll just literally call you up saying you are going to buy 
<laughs> this bank, okay? <laughs> and, and in the 1987 crash, they called up the New York Stock Exchange for the market makers and just said, you will buy these stocks. <laughs> You're going to create a floor price here. Yeah. So they got some power in that kind of stuff during uh, during emergencies here. But um, my model here, just a week before that banking crisis hit, said, hey, this is a very good bottom. Buy it. And then it started going up. We're making money. We're happy. But I had the model saying there's still a couple of weeks for one last setback. And when you know it, the banking crisis comes in, the stock market's going down. I'm thinking, oh, my gosh, we got a backpedal here. But it was fascinating. The model saying, you know, the best guess is this is only going to last a couple of weeks. It's going to be all over. But it did warn the second best guess is we're going to have problems for a few months. Well, the first guess was right. Uh, the market has rallied uh, very well here uh, Price-wise, I think the stock market is saying, okay, <clears throat> the Federal Reserve and Treasury stepped in there. The banking system stepped in there. Uh, we may have not truly fixed this in terms of clearing everything up, but it's it's good enough. We're going we're gonna to survive and move forward. I will say the, there's some internal things in the stock market that I use as qualifiers, specifically volume, really hasn't been that good on this run-up. So it's we do have a lot of people sitting on the sidelines trying to figure this all out. And so you got a smaller group that just happened to flip to the buy side and overpower the sell side. So yes, I'm looking for an opportunity here in the next month or two to to sell the stock market a little bit. But it's probably going to be a brief profit taking and try to reset and buy it all back at a, a little lower price. Um, ultimately, I do think the stock market is going to move higher into the end of the year. And I think we're going to get better economic numbers here. I think inflation is going to keep going lower, although I am worried of that day-to-day real-time inflation. It actually went up uh, last week and this week. But overall, I think we'll um, we'll see it continue to work lower. Uh, next Wednesday, we get another inflation report. So the market will be concerned about that yeah. and see how that uh Works out. So I, on my long-term forecast, I, I just see lower interest rates in the 2025. I see lower commodities by 2025. However, some of those commodities may actually be higher uh, next year or even this year into next year before going down. So I got a mixed picture for a few of those commodities. And in a minute, maybe we can talk about uh, crude oil and OPEC there. But I, uh, I, I, I see those commodities, the interest rates coming down, the inflation coming down. That should actually help us on the economy. It should help uh, the Fed eventually give up here and uh, and stop raising prices or uh, their interest rates. Um, so far, this bad news, I realized it was scary. That banking crisis, I've been warning uh, for years now, we might have a 1907 uh, analog year, meaning you get a copy of something in the past. Um, and a lot of people are saying we've already seen it. I think, I think in a way we have. But at the same time, it is different. Um, but I think we're we're going to pull through it. You know, if if there's going to be lingering problems from this banking crisis, I think it's just going to be a headwind of how high the stock market can go and how well the economy does. But I, I just if you look at it, the stock market economy has really shrugged off a lot of bad news from last year into this year, and the stock market is going higher on bad news. Yeah. Now, now maybe, you know, I'm not saying there can't be some even worse news, but I'm starting to think I've seen <laughs> some of this news is so bad. I'm starting to think an asteroid could hit the planet and the stock market is still going to go up. It's just, you know, I'm sure there is something worse out there, but I can't quite figure it out. And yep. that's why I try to protect myself. If it goes down a certain amount, I'll get out and rethink everything. But I, um, I think looks things look good to me long term. They really do. Short term, I understand why some people are still nervous. Yeah. Okay. I, really, I, I get it, but got to go with what I see at the highest probability and what has worked for me for forty years. You know, and and hey, I make a living out of the out of the stock market. Okay, this podcasting service is is fun. I like to share my ideas and make an extra buck. And um, but I um, this is working well for me on the economy and. And the stock market and the commodities. So, I stick. I'll stay with it. <laughs> yeah. So, a question I have for you. I mean, so the job reports keep coming out, and they're always bigger than what everyone is, is expecting. Everyone is. I don't know. There was one, I guess, last month where it was off a little bit from what they were expecting. But for the most part, 
they're expecting zero and it comes in like, oh, wow, a quarter million more jobs got added to the economy. Look at this. Oh, it's a it's a great machine. If you look at it, January, 500,000 jobs. February, 300,000 jobs. Today, we just learned March is over 200,000 jobs. Yep. Yes, you're losing the momentum, but you know what? That's kind of how it works. So oh, yeah. to me, that to me, that doesn't bother me. That's standard. And companies will build jobs into summer, and then they start backing off jobs for the rest of the year is how, how I view it seasonally. So, mm-hmm. so yep. to me, nothing out of the ordinary other than you have to classify it as one of the better, stronger jobs compared to, say, an average year over the past 50 years. Yeah. So when you're looking at the 10 million jobs that are still out there to be had, I mean, how, how much of that, considering where we started at post-COVID to where we're at today, do you have any idea what that number, how much that number has shrank since then? On the what? Uh, On the available say, jobs since COVID? Oh, oh, um yeah, on the jolts, I believe we were up to 11 million jobs when we used to keep about 5 million. So after COVID, these companies just went crazy. Right. I think they just said, be as safe as possible because we got people who are dying of COVID. We got people retiring early because of COVID. Where are we going to be? And so they just said, put the jobs out there. And that's what some people are saying. The number is kind of artificial. It's kind of made up a little bit. These companies overreacting. But boy, it's come down slowly. I mean, we were 11 million or more. Now we're just going below 10 million and people are all excited. They're kind of happy about that, that we're cooling things off. But heck, you got to come all the way back to 5 million to get back to uh, to normal. Uh, and other people are saying, well, those jobs might be on the list as though they're available. But, you know, some of them people don't want because they're still asking for tremendous education and experience and low uh, low wages. So, <laughs> so low cost to the company, you know. So I get that. We don't know how quality of a number of that. But to me, I'm not fearful of those job openings coming down as a sign of recession. I don't think it has anything to do with that. you got to bring it down a huge amount. And by the time you get that, there's probably some other indicator that was already warning, hey, you're already in a recession. So I'd be right. very cautious cautious of that jolts job report to me it's a good thing it's coming down in the sense of just getting back to a normal economy and other things i'm looking at what is a normal economy while on the inflation side if you look at month to month change of inflation we're back to normal of what we've seen for decades it's a little tight range just bounces around a few percent i'll admit it's still a little wild and crazy within that range but i think it's telling us it's calming down what's not normal is the overall year-to-year inflation. The last one come out at 6%. Yeah. I think I think we should drop to 5.6. I'm hopeful for 5.2. I don't feel very accurate on that kind of thing. So I normally just wait to see what it is and then plug it into the model. Because uh, the bad, the difficult thing dealing with this inflation stuff is we look at the real-time stuff, but the government's like months to even a year behind on how all that stuff is calculated in. So it, it makes it difficult to forecast what are they going to put out compared to what we see in the actual stores and the credit cards and the actual data, you know. And that's another thing on the job side, the initial jobs is claimed somebody put out saying, well, you know, some of these people want higher jobless uh, to show we're getting back to a normal economy and they just can't get it. Well, turns out the government revised that one, just like they revised inflation. And they claim if you put <laughs> take the revision out, put it back the way it was calculated, actually the jobless claims are up. Uh, you know, 30, 40,000 more, they're up about where some people wanted it. So another confusing thing, because the government has changed their formulas and in inflation and uh, and uh, initial jobless claims here. Uh, by the way, unemployment dropped this morning to three and a half percent. Normally, if jobs are up, you won't see the unemployment come down to the next month. There's always a little lag there. So I'm not sure why this time around, it was down as well, but my gosh, three and a half percent. I mean, uh, doesn't get much better than this, really. Yeah. So I fully understand why that can bounce a little, but how unemployment works is normally it bounces one a de- once a decade by a large amount because of a, a recession. And I still say the model is going to be correct. That we're not going to get that near the end of this decade. Um, what's unusual this time is we spiked it off the COVID crash it immediately because of all the money we printed to try to save ourselves. So now we have this pattern. Normally, when unemployment would just slowly come down for eight years, stock market goes up for eight years. Then you get your recession and you get unemployment exploding. You get the stock market dropping hard and fast. And then we start the whole thing all over again. 
This time around, we went straight up on unemployment, straight down on unemployment. And so it's like for the rest of the decade, I guess we're just going to do nothing and unemployment is just going to bounce around there. Well, you know, I think we have to consider there could be a few scares along the way. It's going to rip, uh, ripple around there, bumps and this and that. But it is a weird pattern. But um, the model saying you have not destroyed how we do business ever since the Great Depression, that uh, unemployment will just stay down here for us the decade. That could be very interesting later this decade in terms of where we're going for the economy and stock market. Positive, I mean. Okay. Mm -hmm. But it is, again, another perplexing thing that uh, most of us, uh, regardless if you're 20 years old or 200 years old, right. you, you haven't seen this kind of a behavior in unemployment. So, you know, we all have to keep looking over our shoulders. But it, to me, uh, at the same time, you have to go, what do you think the best probability is? And yeah. I know I'm going up against some people out there pretty good, but it, it's looking like there's more and more in my camp on my side. <laughs> so, so I'll stick with it. Yep. That is the one thing about this. We had, I had a conversation with somebody the other day about on the equipment side of the business that there's, there's what we're headed into and how things are shaping up right now. There's never been a, uh, this has never happened before. And so trying to figure out what that roadmap looks like going down the road is by like Lewis and Clark trying to paint a paint on a piece of paper, what the Louisiana. <laughs> I mean, yeah. Yep. So yeah, so it's it's a it's a definitely a, a, a interesting time, and you know it's it's a cool to be a part of it. You know what I mean? So you have you have some stories to tell later in life. Um, <laughs> all right, let's talk about oil for a minute. Oil. OPEC came out and said, "Hey, guess what we're doing? Cut back production." Um, which I, I mean, I get why they're doing. It. They're trying to make as much money as they can, but they also were headed into a quote unquote possible recession, and like you just kind of laid out, you don't think that's going to happen, but they have to have some indicator out there somewhere that says, hey, we're not just doing this for the sake of trying to sell, you know, less higher priced oil into a, a depressed economy uh, already. So must be something out there they're looking at that says something different than, than what they're doing. We're also heading into the driving season. So I kind of get that a little bit too, where we're going with that. But um, I guess moreover, when OPEC does that, it now opens the door up for U.S. shell companies, shell oil, and and the various other um, non-traditional forms of oil production in the United States to uh, come online and make um, make some good money what they're doing. So I guess looking at the oil on the energy side, I mean, natural gas is buy one, get one free right now. It's almost, I can't believe how cheap it is. But you're looking at what's going on with um, energy as a whole. Oil, gas, those kind of things are, are expensive. You start looking at the natural gas side. And as we head into the... Uh, high output energy season here going into the summer. I uh, mean, I'll tell you what, there's there's a lot of things that, that don't make sense, I guess, right now, Rich. So when you're looking at at that, what's your thoughts there? Yeah, uh, good point on the uh, shell oil. I, I, because um, uh, I'm more focused on what's really going on with the OPEC here in near term, but uh, point is, if we can keep those oil prices, especially if they get back above $85, I've always assumed you're buying more alternative energy, you're buying more other sources of crude oil. And so you would think that would build supplies down the road. At the same time, I'm very convinced these crude oil companies are, um, they're very convinced this alternative energy is never going away. It's always going to be a competitor. And I think they're fine that if they have to, uh, they'll employ less people, but pay them very well. And they'll sell le and produce less oil, but they're going to charge a good dollar for it and they can get it. Okay. So I think there is that kind of mentality there. Of a little bit different free market system, not so free, in other words. Okay. Right. Um, so there's that. Now, in terms of um, OPEC, boy, the timing of what they did is impressive because I came out a month or so ago and wrote, I'd write some articles in, in some circles, specific circles uh, where they're kind of locked up. People have to pay to get in there and see that stuff. And, but it's a variety of analysts, economists, even businesses. And I wrote that uh, crude oil. Uh, was not looking good. It was down to some targets I set a couple of years ago. It was finally down to targets in the $60 area, and I never let up on those targets. As Someday it's coming back to that, and it did it. But I also realized we're running late on what I call a minor long-term business cycle bottom. So I was thinking, okay, oil is going to bottom this year and go up into next year, and it may still do that. 
But there's also another problem that a much larger business cycle is actually bearish many commodities, including oil, into 2025. So it's a bit confusing because it's saying it might not go up that much into 2024. It may bounce some this year all the way back down lower still, only to bounce right back up again 2024. So a very complicated pattern. So and eventually it probably will prove the model right that prices will be back down by 2025. But there could be a lot of fluctuation in the meantime. This might not be an easy bear market, and it may not be an easy bull market, and it can be both mixed in. It's just a weird time. And you, I can see this. It's not just charts and prices. That's part of it. But I can see this in the fundamental data that we've got this mixed picture of how this news is going to flow back and forth and the data is going to flow. So what I warned my subscribers, and this was a couple of months ago, I said, if we start seeing lower prices in April, uh, for some commodities and others, uh, May, and the same for commodity indexes, um, April, May, on into the end of the year. In other words, it's just a starting point. April, May, into the end of the year, if we see lower than what we've seen in March back to September of last year, then I want to be more focused on down into 2025. And I thought, you know what, this is, uh, I call it a time stop. And I said, they're going to put that oil down some more. And they're going to trigger that time stop. And I need to have a little more faith in being bearish commodities into 2025, even though we can still have a, a nice bull market along the way. It's fascinating to me that I wrote that stuff out. And I know that stuff goes around the world. I've had comments from countries more in the grains over the years, but, you know, people in Africa, China, Australia, things like that. So I know they see it. I know they read it. It's just fascinating. All of a sudden, OPEC just, bam, comes out there saying million barrels less. And to me, I think that they're saying, even if the economy slips a bit, it's not going to slip enough. We want our fair share. We don't need to help. The global economy or the U.S. economy would would lower oil prices, and I think it's too low for them, frankly, what they think they need. So, uh, one hand, people thought this was bullish, and the oil price opened up four bucks overnight. And on our charts, we have this gap up. So, some people are betting, well, it's got to come down, fill this gap. But you know what? It just sat there all week long as if they did not know what to do. And I think some of them are saying this means higher oil price. But they don't know. They don't dare to buy it at that level because they got that gap. They'd rather buy it on a pullback to fill that gap. And so this was a reflection uh, this week of uh, what are they going to do? My guess is they're going to have to get off the fence next week. We should get a clue next week. Are they going to pull it down some? My model's saying, I realize the bulls are saying, okay, $95 oil. And Goldman Sachs, they've been against me quite often the last few years when I keep trying to forecast lower oil. But in recent times, uh, more recently, they started flipping, saying they were giving up on the idea of over $100 oil. And then uh, just only a few weeks ago, they said they doubted it ever even go to 100 bucks this year. And I thought, well, that's my forecast. That's what I'm thinking. It can't go over 100 bucks. And uh, now they flipped, but they're only going up to 95 Okay, uh, That's possible. I can see that. But I'm now leaning more towards a group that's saying, you know what the OPEC might have done is rig this so it doesn't go lower. And I think, well, that's great. They were saying, don't let Rich Possum be right on his timestamp. <laughs> <laughs> so it's it's funny how some of this stuff works because you're saying, well, nobody knows me. Nobody knows who what I'm doing. And yet it, it really does boil down. This modeling stuff works. That it was saying you're coming to a critical point, which is why I named my podcast Critical Point, where they've got to make a decision. And I've always said sellers set the bottom. Demand does not create a bottom. Not normally. Sometimes it does, but not always. Um, I, I You have to get the sellers to say, this is it. I don't care if we go bankrupt. We are not selling you another bushel of grain. We are not selling you another barrel of oil. We are not going lower. And sometimes it, they literally have tightened things up and the supply isn't there for them and they can't do it anyways. I think this is a message from OPEC. We're simply not going to sell it any lower. We'll keep cutting back. If we have to sell less at a higher, in order to get that higher price, we'll, we'll do it. And it means something to them economic. But I also think it gives us a clue they're not that fearful of the global economy and uh, U.S. economy falling apart here. And uh, now maybe 
maybe it's just because they think even if it were to fall apart, they can still get a better summer driving season, you know, and, and make a buck in the summer. And then maybe they'll have to back off. So maybe they're just thinking short term, but fascinating stuff. And that's what I just want to warn everybody. And of course my subscribers will get the greater insight information and the actual timing of it. But I've got these time stops set in commodities um, that things can go wrong sometime the rest of this year here when uh, prices will be lower in 2025, even though I still can see some confusing moments where they could put them up on us. Right. Um, you know, and then and then put them right back down again. And uh, interesting structure. I haven't seen that kind of uh, patterns for decades again. It kind of goes with the time we're in. We're seeing things, especially for your youngster, you've just never seen some of this stuff, you know. Yep. And, uh, but anyways, very, uh, that was fascinating. OPEC show up at that time, just as I suddenly, and I was saying, wow, we, I got to tell subscribers about this time stop. Uh, we're getting to the end where if they, if it can be bullish, they better get to work on this. And, uh, wasn't really thinking OPEC necessarily doing what they did, but it's, it's now making sense. And they had to have been looking at things that, I'm looking at, but they also must have some things that I can't get my hands on that are matching up with the other things so that my model is mm-hmm. looking kind of smart on uh, on the crude oil here, and we'll just see where we go with it. But I don't think we should be scared of 100 or 100, over $100 oil this year or next, but don't be surprised um, unless OPEC suddenly goes back to producing full bore that uh, we can see a lift in prices, but my stock market model is saying it's not going to hurt the economy. It's not going to hurt the stock market right now. Yeah. Okay. All right. So let's jump over and talk about, so we've hit stock market, talked about energy and those kind of things. Let's talk about some geopolitical stuff here a little bit. And as you see this Russia, Ukraine war that we've got, and then we're talking about, um, you know, you got Erdogan over in Turkey. That's kind of brokering this, uh, Black Sea port um, free kind of passage thing. And and he's up for re-election. And I guess that's June or July or something like that when that happens. Um, there's a good possibility that if he's not re-elected, this, this Grand Corridor thing goes away. I guess, Rich, as you're looking at, you know, going on, I had a crop report come out last week too, where, you know, it's a, it's a planning intentions report. And always there's always some fireworks about what, you know, may or may not happen, which rarely is that report accurate for what actually happens throughout the rest of the year. But the one thing that overshadowed that was the stock report and the quarterly stocks report that came out. And lo and behold, we've got less stocks than what they anticipated. So, which just shouldn't be shocking because it's been that way every time the quarterly reports come out for the last 18 months, seems like. But um, so you're looking at the situation we have there. We got, we have a situation in, um, in Australia where you're starting to see, they're switching from uh, ultra dry or ultra wet area to 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 really get and see some some shortages and moisture. So, I guess what I'm getting at here is, is you're looking at the overall picture here of grain, and you're looking at how that kind of what your models are saying. There's a lot of of uh, unknowns right now that could have a, a pretty big swing on that grain market, especially if lo and behold the Black Sea just says, "Hey, we're not." Russia, we're not we're not letting anything coming in and out of the Black Sea anymore. That's going to cause a big problem with the movement of grain around the world, especially in the northern Africa and, and into Asia. Um, I guess what are you what are you looking at there, and, and what are your models saying? Yeah, I don't know how to predict the the Russia Ukraine stuff, but I you can see uh, Turkey uh, basically yes, he's coming up for election, and he's been playing a very dangerous game of. Uh, where he's allowing very high inflation, but what he's hoping to do currency-wise is attract more business for the country eventually. Uh, he thinks he can be a, a contradictory to <laughs> how the textbooks say. And, and you know, boy, if it works for him, fantastic. He uh, He's going to be big on the global scene of how to uh, make a country far more competitive in the world. But it also may break them from, you know, what are they doing? 80, 90 percent inflation, I guess, might be behind on that. But uh, and now he's coming up to election where people might say, well, we've had enough of this, uh, this inflation game here. And, you know, you're out. <laughs> so right. uh, and I it certainly wouldn't surprise me. Whoever comes in isn't going to carry forward on that. They probably will try to back off inflation. And then, of course, the grain stuff, what he's trying to do is rebalance things that, yeah, he's running into high inflation problems, but if he can just prove he's bringing in some different kind of businesses there, so he's just trying to uh, to help out his case on the economy there, and and I mean that may work for him as well. But yeah, if Russia doesn't follow through with that, 
you would think that it's global global support for prices and uh, same for U.S. prices. And I do see that potential during the remaining the year, we can get some sudden uh, pretty good sizable pops in, uh, in grain prices uh, just, just with all of this Russia-Ukraine stuff. But how reliable is that? So far, most of those bullish pops haven't lasted long periods of time that tends to erode eventually, you know. Um, what might be more sustainable, of course, is is weather. And for years now, I've been saying that sometime in that 2021 to 2024 time frame, uh, we would see a uh, once a decade cyclical crop problem uh, for the world, uh, more so Northern Hemisphere. And then my greatest interest is the U.S. because I think I can forecast that more accurately, have uh, better data. And uh, we're running out of time here. It's uh, still due and it may occur this year or next. Uh, and we may see some issues in China since I classify those as Northern Hemisphere. So we could, we could certainly get some, uh, weather issues also can put those grain prices up. And if Russia and Ukraine, uh, had, or, um, and Turkey and all of that favored, if they did something to push higher prices at the same time we're getting the crap problem, well, then still higher prices because at least for the U.S., yes, we have tight old crop. I mean, that collapse in prices a few weeks ago. That was off the new crop data from USDA, and they overreacted. They just the market just fell apart. It was all new crop. They totally forgot about old crop, and now the, the recovery has been nice. And it's just because of the grain stocks report reminding them that we still have tight old crop. And so even if we're going to plant more of everything this year, and it looks like we will, what if we still get a crop problem though? Okay. Yeah. Because, uh, you know, by my calculations here, we ought to see 166 to 163 corn yield. And that's that's going to make things very interesting with this tight balance sheet. Uh, some of my subscribers, followers are disappointed that I backed away for years. I said, when we get here, we're probably going to see a 158, 153. Well, the record high was high enough that I do it on a percentage basis. And then I also like to go with this theory that they're losing the glaciers is actually feeding more water into certain areas of the world um, and might even be helping the corn belt, believe it or not, coming down through uh, Canada or over by Alaska down, that kind of stuff. Um, so I really question that. Uh, I really doubt we're going to see in the 150s yield. We're not due for something as serious as 2012. But I got people against me on this, and they could be right. Uh, there's people like Sean Hackett who will explain the, the Gleisberg cycle uh that could be serious they think it's the most serious thing since the 1930s i can't quite get about on board with that but i'm certainly leaving the door open that's how i'm approaching it now as i'm looking for buy signals in the grains now to prepare for a, a normal seasonal up move into summer which might be small and it's just because of how tight and how the demand flows but the point is we could then put a weather scare on top of that take it higher still and then what if that cyclical crop problem hit then it's going to go higher still. And what if that Gleisberg cycle struck? And then it's going higher still. Yeah. <laughs> so at that point, yeah. 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 So, you know, I don't think any of us can guarantee any of that stuff, right. but you could just see you're kind of setting up for it. It can occur. My modeling says 80% probability of warmer temperatures this summer than last summer. Well, that, that kind of excites me. He said, okay, here comes the crop problem. Well, the problem is on precipitation. The model saying, can't figure this one out. It's 50-50. You might have lower precip and might high have higher. does look like there's a little tendency to be lower, but uh, it's not helpful. And uh, so it, it makes me a little nervous. I don't want to push it too hard on the bullish side here for grain prices or whether or not we're going to have that crop problem. And, and if La Nina goes away in a timely manner, you might not get a crab problem. Some people say there's always a lag behind it, though. Uh, so there's going to be some debatable information. Right today, I would say the futures market and the grains is not really convinced there's a crop problem coming this year. But, you know, come by Memorial Day <laughs> later, they could suddenly wake up. They want a piece of the action. They want on board. And you're going to then see funds and commercials competing at a time the farmer's not going to sell and it could get darn interesting <laughs> so yep. and yet again i just have to warn people i can see we just take it up somewhat this summer get a good crop and we're just going to have to start over next year looking for that crop problem it's it's the best i i can do it's just not 
quite there. It's definitely a bit different than what I've seen in recent decades, which kind of goes goes along with everything else we're looking at, the economy, the financial, the politics, everything's a bit different than what we've seen, but it's not so different that I can't still model it and have a bit of faith to, to try to pick something here. And so, like I say, I'll, I'll play it safe on an up move in the grains here, but I don't want to be gung-ho bull like some here uh, unless I can you know, manage the risk and don't make a fool out of myself in the end. <laughs> right. Right. I understand that. All right, Rich. Good stuff, man. Uh, folks want to reach out to you, get more information about what you're doing. What's the best way to do that? Okay. Grow to criticalpointpod.com and you will find information about myself, some free stuff. I'm trying to get back into blogging, put a little free stuff on there, but the better information, you'll see a link to a page that takes you right to critical uh, point, uh, uh, dot That is actual where you can sign up as well as just watch free and subscription based videos, audios. Uh, it's mostly is locked up on the uh, subscription side. And then there's also a separate, uh, sign up page at that home site at criticalpointpod.com. Now, if they want to, uh, uh, DM me here and have a conversation over Twitter or something. I'm at rich underscore Pawson, P-O-S-S-O-N. And uh, I will do my best to reply and have an answer. Right on. Okay. And Rich, you also said you do some do some trading a little bit too. Is that by appointment only? Is that how you work, how you do that when you working with people and, and in the market? Yeah, basically I run a friends and family hedge fund that I've run for several years, done uh, very well. Um, but I won't get out the numbers because then you get into regulation stuff. But uh, uh, that is still open. I can take on a few more clients there. And then I have um, uh, a service with a global brokerage firm where they can open up individual accounts. That way they can see their own account and they can uh, shut it down to whatever they want with it. But the point is it's linked to a master account. So when I make a trade within my, my accounts, um, it makes a trade for their account. And a uh, simple little system and the broker just takes care of all the paperwork and accounting for me. And, and uh, so I have that. And then I have the podcast for those people who do their own trading or they're working with other professionals, but they'd like some other insights, some signals. And I do give some of the more important signals in this podcast. So I'll, I'll, you know, in a few weeks, we'll probably have a, a sell signal and I'll explain the importance of it so people can decide, do they want to do that and with their money? Or should they just observe it? And and it's okay to observe some of these shorter term, intermediate term kind of things in the sense that uh, if you don't do anything about it, you can say, wow, it worked. And that gives you discipline, uh, builds discipline, confidence. So when the one comes that you want, you can take it. But when you get into this longer term stuff, then, boy, that's something I think everybody needs to pay attention to. All right. So uh, this helped me in 2020 to sell near the highest price in 2020, uh, just as the virus pandemic really hit with the main thrust, and then I bought the bottom two days after. Um, not bragging by no means, because you do that, it'll curse you every time. It's <laughs> a pretty good turn there, man. But a uh, massive, uh, massive reset. I have a, I have an account that's uh, you know up over a thousand percent since to 2010, doing those kind of things just on a long term basis. But it's also uh, I don't manage the risk during the decade, so it can shake you up at times too. Um, but I, uh, I, uh, it was a massive reset, and I don't know how accurate I could ever be again because that was a glorious moment. So I'll be more upfront about that than some people who lead you to believe they can do it again and again, and it's not that's not how things work, unfortunately. But uh, but I'm pretty confident uh, I'll be taking that signal and giving that signal to my subscribers, and I will be taking all my money out of the stock market when that comes again. I'm hopeful that the rest of the country and the world does not do that because that's how you get a 1929 crash. Right. And we really don't need that. Uh, so I fully understand why a lot of professionals advise people to hedge their stock portfolio, don't dump their stocks. But me, I don't like complicating things that way. If I want to sell, I just click the sell button and I'm out of there. <laughs> so, right. so I I will be doing the same thing again, and I will be informing uh, subscribers how to deal with that and and what and help them out there if I can. Um, but it's really about buy and sell signals. I don't advise what do you do with your actual money. 
Uh, but I do do that and these other little things I'm working on the sideline, which is, again, just friends and families. But, hey, I'm always open to new friends. So <laughs> right, on. Right, on, man. right on. All right, buddy. All right, Rich, appreciate you being on the podcast, man. All right. Thank you very much. Look forward to uh, next month. So happy Easter to you, by the way, sir. Oh, same to you. Thank you. All right. On. I'm Casey Seymour with Moving Iron Podcast. Check me out on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Moving Iron LLC. Go to LinkedIn at Moving Iron Podcast and go over to the YouTube channel, which is Moving Iron Podcast YouTube channel. Check it out there and you can see the video version of this podcast along with uh, everything else that's up there too. Go to Moving Iron LLC for everything Moving Iron related and get all the information for the Moving Iron Summit coming up here in Nashville, Tennessee, September 11th through the 13th. We have some great speakers lined up. Got some breakout sessions on Tuesday. I think that'll be a good deal and uh, that'll that'll give you a, uh, a good chance to network with some folks as well. So if you're an equipment dealership, <clears throat> And you've got some folks that you want to send to that, go over to the uh, website, click on the upper right-hand corner there, click on the Moving Iron Summit tab, and you can get all the information there. Or you can send me an email at Moving Iron Podcast at movingironpodcast.com, and I can answer any questions that you might have. So with that, I'm Casey Seymour with Rich Possum. It's going to be smart, folks. Out. Axon started out of a passion for keeping agriculture moving. Imagine having 100 years of tire and wheel knowledge in your back pocket the next time you sell a piece of ag equipment. To find more or become an Axon dealer, please visit axontire.com. Valley Transportation has been hauling ag and construction equipment across the country for the past 33 years. Call Parker at 800-657-4910 for all your trucking needs. At Valley Transportation, our goal is to help you reach yours. No matter how you buy your ag equipment, whether it's from a dealer, an auction, or a private party, AgDirect can help you finance it. You can even apply online at agdirect.com. Learn more about your financing options at agdirect.com. TractorZoom has access to over $20 billion in heavy equipment sales data. TractorZoom's Iron Comps is the industry's trusted solution for transparent equipment values and auctionable pricing insights. This podcast is brought to you by Anvil AppWorks. The Dealer Connect CRMI app with integrated inventory management is an affordable Salesforce-based solution for your dealership. Create connected customer experience and transform how you work. In the 21st century Hard-working people Working hard for you and me Moving higher Time and time again Through the years you'll find us here Moving